There's the old famous movie, uh, Donnie Brasco, and I trust many of you have seen it and enjoyed it. If you haven't or don't remember, it's the fascinating true story of this undercover FBI agent. And his job is sort of to infiltrate the mafia, this notorious crime family in New York, and to go in deep undercover so that he can infiltrate and bring down this mob family. And the story is a riveting story, but what's perhaps most striking about the story is sort of the challenge that this man has in trying to live these dual lives. The, the difficulty he faces day by day in trying to juggle these sort of two personas. Uh, by day, the man is Joe Pistone, a happily married family man who loves his wife and his two beautiful children, wants to play ball with his son, wants to take his daughter for first communion to church. He's a family man. By night... This same man is Donnie Brasco, the violent gangster, the man embedded deep into this mob family who's day by day a part of the mafia and doing unspeakable things. And somehow, he's got to sort of maintain both these personalities, both these characters, these dual lives at the same time. And what's fascinating about the story is that, as you might almost be able to guess, what happens is slowly the line begins to unravel. It begins to erode and blur so that pretty soon he's not sure who the real him is anymore. Is he Joe Pistone or is he Donnie Brasco? And over and over again, he's not sure as the lines begin to blur about who he really is. In fact, in one of the more pivotal scenes of the movie, he gets into this heated argument with his wife who is day by day becoming more and more distressed with the man that her husband is becoming. And eventually, he finally blurts out to the effect of, I don't know who I am. To the point, he almost confesses, I'm, I'm not just becoming them, I am them now. Now, I have no idea what it's like to be in the FBI, nor to be a mobster, but I know exactly what he's talking about. And I think that every honest Christian knows exactly what he's talking about. That every honest Christian can relate to the feeling like they've got these two dual lives. That they've got these almost two personalities and two personas. Because on the one hand, there's the side of me that genuinely loves Christ. That wants to follow him and obey God and do what's right. And none of that feels like a show. It feels like it's really who I am. And then there's this other side of me. This side of me that is drawn to sin like a magnet, that is capable of doing the kind of evil that makes me shudder, that scares me about myself and fills me with overwhelming senses of guilt and shame. And you come as you're sort of living this life and you feel like this is who I really am and this life and you're not sure if this is who I really am and you become to the place where you're not really sure who you really are. You've got these sort of dual lives and you're not sure which one is really you. It's as if there's this new me that is committed to Christ and then there's this old me that is committed to sin and these two don't get along. They are constantly fighting, warring for who's going to be the real me. And so the question is, if you've ever related with that, what do you do? What do you do with the fact that you feel like you belong to Christ, but feel still trapped by besetting, habitual, indwelling sin? One man phrased it like this. He said, suppose a man to be a true believer and yet finds himself in a powerful indwelling sin. 
leading him captive to it, consuming his heart with trouble, perplexing his thoughts, weakening his soul, robbing him of peace, and perhaps defiling his conscience and exposing him to hardening through the deceitfulness of sin, what shall he do? Right, that quote is asking what we're asking. Which is, suppose you have a believer, and, and you notice a true believer, and yet he finds himself corrupted by, dominated by, troubled by, weakened by, disturbed by, perplexed by, indwelling sin. What should that man do? Now, perhaps it'll be interesting for you to know, that quote was written in the 1600s by a pastor named John Owen. And yet, it feels like it had almost been torn out of your journal yesterday. And I think, friends, what that means at the very least is we are not the first ones to think through this or wrestle through this, but through the millennia, Christians have struggled with what do I do with the fact that I belong to Christ and yet I've got this sin that feels like it's caked onto me, like it's so close and it's not going anywhere. What is a believer to do with their indwelling sin? Paul says, Colossians 3, verses 5, Here's what you are to do. Let me read you 3 to 10 again. Here's what you are to do. You are to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must Put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul says this is what the believer is to do. Now, right off the bat, what I want us to sort of clear away is to remind ourselves who is Paul talking to in Colossians 3, verses 5 to 10? Before we examine what he's saying, let's remember who he's saying it to. Who is it that needs to put to death the lists of sins that he rattles in verse 5 and again in verse 8? Who's he speaking to? The answer is he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to the people who last week we heard in verses 1 to 4 have been united to Christ. He's speaking to the people he has just finished in the paragraph above saying have been united to Christ. If you remember our analogy last week, what happens to a plane happens to the passenger. So that when Christ was di died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was raised, you were raised. When he ascended, you were ascended. That whatever has happened to him has happened to you. And so he's speaking to the people who have, hear this, died with Christ, been raised with Christ, been exalted with Christ, who in verse 4 is hidden with Christ, who now Christ is even their life. And yet, consider the list of sins that threaten to dominate and destroy then a Christian. Look at verse 5. Listen to the list of sins that he says a Christian needs to deal with. He starts off with sexual immorality and impurity. Sort of just this blanket phrase for every kind of sexual act and activity that is outside of a husband and a wife in marriage. 
So, sex before marriage, you're in. Sex outside of marriage, you're in. Addiction to pornography, you're in. Any and every kind of impurity, every kind of sexual activity that is outside of a husband and a wife in marriage, he blankets them all and says, you're in. And then, just in case you think that maybe I can get off on some kind of technicality, he then couples that with the phrases, passion and evil desire. So as to remind you, this not only includes those who have done something with their body, but includes the sort of things that go on in your heart and in your mind. Passion and evil desire. This sort of blanket phrase to say it includes and envelops every kind of indecency. Everything to which your heart and mind goes to. All the mental movies that you play in your mind. All of that is included. And just sort of to cover all the grounds, he says, and underneath all of that is covetousness, which is idolatry. So underneath all of this is sort of this sense that I want what I want. And I'm going to call the shots of my life because I want to be my own God. There's this idolatry underneath all of it which says, I get to run my life. Now, needless to say, this is not a flattering list. And in fact, in verse 6, he says outright, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. These are not small character flaws, small mistakes, little traits you wish you didn't have. These are things which incur the wrath of God. That is that God is sitting in the heavens, patient while we dabble in all these things, but one day the dam of God's wrath is going to be opened and unleashed, and God's active wrath of judgment is coming for these things. Now, just in case sexual sin isn't where you particularly struggle, isn't where you tend to stumble, he then gives you another list in verse 8 to say, don't be so quick to pat yourself on the back. Don't be quick to say those disgusting people in verse 5, because now he's got another list in verse 8. He says, here's some other things. He starts with anger. And who of us escapes now? Anger, that emotion that tends to boil over and cover all the other emotions. And while the Bible speaks of the possibility of righteous anger, the Bible also mentions that's something that God does, and you and I more often than not. We get angry because someone has crossed our will. We don't get what we want. I get angry at my seven-year-old not because I'm caring for her soul, but because she doesn't recognize my home is my empire, and she has to do what I want. And so I get angry. And then where does that anger go? But the next word, which is wrath, which is sort of the outward expression of that anger. We'd call it blowing your top or, or losing your temper or, 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 or just exploding. That, that wrath that comes out, that, that's what he says next. And then some of us, again, are tempted to pat ourselves on the back because our personality, we never shout, we never scream. And so he adds next the word malice because much, many of us are much more passive-aggressive. And so you are so happy that you don't you know, lose your temper Instead, what you do is you have this boiling, silent, seething rage on the inside. 
this malice. And all of that eventually finds its way into what he even says next, which is slander, that you're the kind that can talk smack about someone when they're not there. That you're the kind that what the wrathful person does with their hands, you do with your mouth. You are the kind that shreds someone apart with your mouth and with your tongue. And he says, and, and while we're talking about the things of your mouth, then there's obscene talk, which is exactly what it sounds like. And, and, and not only that, verse 9, that we tend to lie to one another as well. See, here's what I want you to understand and consider. By no means is this a very flattering list. This is a list of horrific things. But the thing I want you to consider is, who is Paul saying is susceptible to these things? In danger of these things. In danger of being dominated by these things. And, and needs to do something about these things. It's Christians. I just want us to remember that here he is not speaking to pagans who, in Colossae who are worshiping idols in the temple. He is talking to Christians in Colossae who are worshiping Jesus in the church. He's saying five and eight need to be on the radar of the Christians at Seven Mile Road Church. That you are the ones he's talking to. So now put this together. Because in verses 1 to 4, he has just said, you, believers at Seven Mile Road, you have been united to Christ. That is that you died to sin. You died the penalty to sin. You don't have anything to do with sin anymore because you died to sin. Moreover, you've been buried with Christ, raised with Christ, exalted with Christ. You're seated in the heavens with Christ. Your life is hid with Christ. You are one with Christ. And then, 5 and 8. That's you too. That's the stuff you have to think through, fight, and war against. Now, I don't know about you, but it feels like a disconnect. Is it Joe Pistone or is it Donnie Brasco? Am I Jekyll or am I Hyde? Who is the real me? And what should a believer do with the fact that I am who verses 1 through 4 say I am, and yet 5 through 8 is also part of my story? Here's the first thing I want you to hear. I think the first thing that this means is that a Christian needs to come to grips with the reality of indwelling sin. Hear this again. I think the first thing that you need to do is if you're a believer, you need to come to grips with the reality of indwelling sin. Believer at Seven Mile Road, hear me, you are united to Christ. You have died with Christ to sin. In fact, there is no more penalty for you. If you're a believer, I already died on the cross to sin. I don't have to die again because when Christ died on the cross, I died with him. So it's as if I was crucified. It counts. There is no more penalty. That's real. I've been buried with Christ. My old life is done. I've been raised with Christ. I'm in the heavens with Christ. Believer, that is all true. But at the same time, while it is true that you have died to sin, it is also true that sin has not died to you. While it is true that you have died to sin, it is also true that sin has not died to you. While it's true that your nature has been changed, it's also true that the nature of sin has not changed. While it's true, believer, that you no longer have the penalty of sin, even the dominion power of sin 
It's also true that there is still, however, the presence of sin. And the Christian needs to come to grips with the reality of indwelling sin. The reality, brother and sister, that you still live in a fallen, broken world. The reality, brother and sister, that you still, moreover, live within a broken, fallen body. In fact, the scriptures would say, there is this flesh nature in you that is constantly at war with the new nature that Christ has given you. Uh, A friend of mine described it as almost the enemy within the camp. It's as if there is an enemy within the camp here, someone who's fighting against the very thing I want to be. There's an enemy within the camp, and there will always, Christian, be for you a war with sin. Christ has given you a new nature, but that old flesh Adam nature will not go down quietly. And so a believer needs to come to grips with the reality that she is going to be fighting sin all her life. That until they put her body in the ground in death, or her body is raised at the second coming of Christ, Till one of those two happens, you are going to be fighting sin. You are going to be battling indwelling sin. And here's why that's important. Because a realistic view of the nature of sin keeps us from being shocked and disappointed and despair and destroyed and condemned and confused when we find the things that sound like five and eight coming up in our life. You see, if you've got this imaginary view of Christianity, if you've been sold that what Christianity is essentially this sort of ride up where you just go from victory to victory to victory until you attain perfection here, you need a realistic view which says, rather it's going to be struggle after struggle after struggle as you forever, till you die or Christ returns, fight sin. It, It keeps you from being shocked that Christians sin, even the big sins, You heard them in 5 and 8? Even the big sins. A Christian is not one who is exempt from sin, even the big sins, but is one who is perpetually engaged in a fight with that sin. Who never lets up, who never gives up, who never yields, who is constantly at war. And listen, believer, you need to be in a perpetual fight against sin because you need to know your sin never stops. Your sin never takes a break never calls in a sick day. Your sin never goes on vacation. Your sin is always at work, always laboring to produce in you the deeds of the flesh which lead to death. Your sin is active. A believer must be active against his sin because sin is active in the life of a believer. It's always active. Did you notice in the verses we read that Paul describes sin almost like it's a living being? I mean, his first words are, put to death. Now, put to death implies what? That there's something living i got to put to death. He's, He's basically saying, murder, kill. I can't kill a rock. I can kill a man. The implication is, it's almost as if the picture of sin is this living thing. In verse 9, he'll call it the old self, as if there's this old man, this living nature. Sin is almost pictured as this living thing that is active, that is always laboring, always at work. I mean, just hear some of the verses. If I were to read you Romans 7, verse 23, it would describe sin as bringing the believer, bringing the believer to captivity 
actively waging war against their desire to follow Christ. If I were to point you to Galatians 5, 17, you'd see that sin there is actively opposing the Spirit, keeping, quote, you from doing the things you want to do. If I were to point you to James 1.14, you'd see that sin there is actively seducing, enticing, luring, so that it can bring forth death in your life. Sin is always active. In fact, I referenced before the old Puritan pastor, John Owen. Listen to a quote he gives in a book called Mortification of Sin. He says that the choicest believer, sort of the language of the best believer among us, the most mature, the most godly, the choicest believer who are assuredly free from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. And now here's his question, a pastor's question to you. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. And then here's his phrase. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's the advice of a godly old pastor from the 1600s who would say to us, brother, sister, you can't be passive because your sin is not passive. You will day after day be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Every day, you're either gaining ground or losing ground in your war with sin. Because sin will be killing you if you will not be killing it. You ought to hear, brother, sister, that we can't be passive towards sin because it's not passive towards us. But rather, our sin seeks day by day to deceive you, to destroy you, to rob you of spiritual strength and vitality, to strip away your usefulness to God. It is laboring to bring you to an end. I think, brothers and sisters, there, there are some of us here in this room who were once soft-hearted, humble, broken, contrite Christians with a zeal for God and a love for the things of God who have now found themselves cold and numb and apathetic and distant and hard and earthly and carnal. And for some of us, it's because you have unmortified sin in your life. Pastor Owen, in his book, would add, and not only does sin tend to harden us, though unwittingly, we end up hardening others to the gospel because of unmortified sin in us. Not only does unmortified sin harden you, unwittingly it hardens others around you. See, when my coworker, if your coworker looks at you and sees that your life is characterized by the same things that characterize their life, the things in five and eight that mark their life mark your life. They see at work that you've got every bit of an obscene mouth that they do. They see at work that your attitude to your boss is every bit as slanderous and full of malice as theirs is. And what it unwittingly begins to do is harden them from going, whatever Christianity is, I certainly don't need it because he and I are exactly the same. There is then no holiness in your life that causes the unbeliever to go, there must be some supernatural source to why they're living the way they're living. And unwittingly, 
Our unmortified sin hardens us and those around us from the gospel of Jesus Christ. A believer needs to come to grips with the reality of indwelling sin. I want you to hear, sin is not a mistake. It's not a character flaw. It's not a bad habit. Sin is a living, active enemy that is out to kill you. And you either be killing sin or it will kill you. And so what should a Christian do with the reality of indwelling, habitual, besetting sin? Well, Paul tells us, put it to death. What should a believer do? Put it to death. That's what he says in 3 verse 5. Put it to death. Put to to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The, The original translation, the language there is almost even closer to put to death than your members that are still on the earth. The language is almost of put to death your members, as in your body parts, the appendages of your being. Put to death, because the picture there is sin clings so closely to you, cakes onto you as if it's your own right hand. And so Paul is saying, you ought to be so radical that you put to death your members that are still earthly in you. Perhaps you'll recall the story of a man named Aaron Ralston. If you remember or have heard the story of Aaron Ralston, Aaron Ralston was the hiker in Utah who was hiking through the canyons. One day, he had hiked many times, an 800-pound boulder dislodged, fell on him, caught his right hand. And so now this man is stuck, pinned against the canyon wall, an 800-pound boulder on his right hand. Days passed as he's trying to break free to no avail. After day five, he's forced to drink his own urine to somehow try and stay alive. By the end, he finally takes out a video camera, records himself saying his goodbyes to his family, etches his name on the canyon wall because he's resigned to die. This thing has got his members. And as he's about to give up, he has this epiphany and realizes what he must do. Hollywood made a movie about it called 127 Hours. Because after 127 hours, what this man knew he had to do, he pulled out a pocket knife and began to amputate his own right hand. Interview, he gives the description of cutting through the skin, the muscle, the tendons, and the nerve until 127 hours later, this man who had been pinned down and was moments from death broke free because he put to death his own right arm. And Paul is saying, believer, your fight with sin is no less radical than that. You can either keep your members and lose your soul or lose your members and keep your soul. It's either you put your members to death or it puts you to death. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Put to death, Paul says, therefore what is earthly in you. That is, mortify it, kill it, murder your sin. Now, let me tell you quickly what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean now that you will eliminate it because of everything we said in the beginning. When I call you to murder your sin, when the Bible calls you to mortify, put this sin to death, it's not saying you will eliminate it. Though that is your aim, on this side of eternity, you will be fighting this forever. So if some of us are saying, I can't wait for the day when I don't struggle with pride anymore. I'm going to say to you, brother, that day is coming when you're in the ground or when Christ returns. Instead, you will be in a lifelong fight against pride. 
There are certain sins that are going to be there, but the question is, will you be in that lifelong fight? It's not a question of eliminating it, though that is what the believer is getting at. So by mortify also don't mean behavior modification. I don't mean curb this thing, this bad trait that you don't like about yourself. Hear me. Satan would be just as happy with you who's a workaholic finding all your worth and value in your success, in your career. He'd be just as happy as you finding your righteousness in your daily Bible reading. Just as happy if you now take that and you join the church and now you're righteous, your worth and value comes because of how you keep the spiritual disciplines. Satan would be just as happy for you trading one for the other. So we're not talking here behavior modification. We're talking heart transformation. Not I don't like this about myself, but I can't grieve Christ anymore this way. By mortification, we're also not saying keeping this sin you don't like at bay for a season. So many of us in our war with sin, we've got sort of these heightened moments where we've really got after this thing. And then it eventually wanes. Let me read you a quote again by Owen because he says it perfectly, he says. He says, men are galled with the guilt of a sin that had prevailed over them. They instantly promise to themselves and God that they will do so no more. They watch over themselves and pray for a season until this heat waxes cold and the sense of sin is worn off. And so mortification goes also and the sin returns to its former dominion. Mortification of sin is not this temporary seasonal heightened activity. The metaphor given is almost, you know, there's this thief that shows up in your home, Owen says. And if you could picture it today, it's almost as if when that intruder comes, the lights go on, the floodlights start searching all over, the hounds are released, the alarms begin to blare, and there's this intense sin to search to root this thief out. And what the thief does is he just waits perfectly quietly still. For the lights to go down, the hounds to be called back in, the alarms to silence. And when there is no more active search anymore, he sets about his business again. The mortification of sin is not this heightened activity against a sin for a, a short season. And I also want you to hear the mortification of sin is not focusing on one sin while leaving every other part of your life negligent. Because the way Owen says it is almost... You've got to be committed to a universal obedience to Christ. It's if you don't have in you this desire that wants to obey everything Christ says in every part of your life, don't you imagine you're going to mortify this one sin. Because what that reveals is you just don't like how this affects you. It has nothing to do with love for Christ. You're not earnest in your love for Christ. You just don't like the consequences of this sin or what it makes you feel. And so the believer must be determined towards obedience in all of life if he's going to be mortify even one of his sins. So then if that's not what it is, instead if putting to sin to death is this daily active weakening it, this perpetual fighting against this, this, this seeing the affections of my heart turn towards Christ so that I want him more than I wanted this thing. How do we go about that? Let me say it very quickly. I don't have enough time. Owens has 13 points in his book. So now if I started with 13 points, you'd mortify me. So I'm going to stop. And I'll just tell you very quickly, let me just read you one verse to give you a clue. Owens wrote his book based on a verse similar to the one we're looking at in Colossians. 
uh, Romans 8, verse 13. Here's what it says. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There it is, sort of our same verse. And the idea of you put this thing to death. And how does Paul here say you put it to death? By the Spirit. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we know that the mortification of sin happens by the Spirit. Now if I were to couple one more verse. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the armor of God that we've got to put on. And he lists a bunch of things, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of truth, the the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. He gives one offensive weapon. Let me read a few. Ephesians 6, verse 16 and 17. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, if I were to couple these two, what we've heard is, how do we put something to death? We put it to death by the Spirit. And what is the offensive weapon of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. Do you see that? So if by the Spirit, by wielding with faith the Word of God, I can put to death the sin of my life. I can be engaged in the war against sin by the Spirit, by applying with faith the Word of God. And that happens in anything in life. You're fighting the sin of unforgiveness and bitterness. This thing is something you love to rehearse, this hurt that someone did to you. You nurse your wounds, you lick your wounds. It feels good to you to know how deeply self-pity you should feel. What do I do? I I put that sin to death knowing otherwise that sin is going to put me to death. That thing wants to consume me. It won't stop until it has all of me. So what I do is I take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And brothers and sisters, you need to know the Word of God for you to fight sin then. You can't not know the Word of God and fight sin. So maybe I take Matthew 18 where Jesus told that story of the parable of the two debtors. The one guy who had been forgiven a billion dollars walks outside and chokes a guy who owed him ten dollars. And Jesus said, how can that be? And I begin to apply by faith the sword of the Spirit to my unforgiveness and bitterness. And I begin to say, Lord, show me the debt I owed in my sin, the debt you paid at the cross, that I might forgive another the lesser sin compared to what I have done to you. In many ways, we can do that, applying the sword of the Spirit to our sin. Let me end by saying this. Why should a believer be serious about this? It's just one thing he says in verse 9 and 10. It says, don't lie to another. Don't do the things of 5 to 8 because you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after its creator. Here's why, Christian, you should be so serious about this fight. Because by definition, you're someone who has put off sin and put on Christ. That's who you are. You really are Joe Pistone. No matter how much Donnie Brasco shows up, that's who you really are. You really are verses 1 through 4. You really are, Christian, someone who has put off sin and put on Christ. The language there is almost of taking off clothes, as if I took off this tattered, worn, disgusting garment that doesn't fit, and I put on something new. That's who you are. How can a butterfly 
go back to acting like a caterpillar? How can a Christian go back to acting like they live in sin? That's not who you are anymore. And so, brothers and sisters, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Let God's Spirit apply that to us today. Let's pray. Our Father, we 